Hey everybody, welcome back. We're glad to have you here. We're going to keep going today in our walk through the book of Luke together. So if you have a Bible, you want to grab it, uh, pause the video, go grab your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 5. The rest of all the slides and everything will also be in that um, Uversion app, if you have the Uversion app and you'd like to follow along. Um, but let me just open us up in prayer. Lord, the gospel story starts with a a realistic view of who we are. And I just pray, Lord, that through this text today, you would help us see that, um, that we are, um, that we are sinners and you're a great savior. I pray, Lord, that this, this time that we spend together, even, uh, you know, over Vimeo or whatever on the website here, I pray that this time that we spend together would draw us into your heart as a community and into your life. Um, so we just we just ask that you would be here now among us. Amen. So I'm reading this book right now. Well, reading. I'm listening to the audiobook. Do you, I think I've asked that before. Do you get to say reading if you're listening to an audiobook? But anyway, I'm going through this book right now um, about America and specifically about the American empire. And uh, I'm really learning a lot of stuff that was left out of every history class and every history book I ever read. Um, one of the points the author is trying to make of this book um, is this, and it seems to be true, that when America took territories before, right, we took, uh, you know, Missouri and the Louisiana Purchase and uh, Oregon Territory, you know, we've had all these different territories. And when the territory was filled uh, with white people, it was assumed that uh, this territory would eventually become a state. And when a territory was filled with non-white people, it was assumed that it wasn't. So think of uh, Puerto Rico. Think of, um, you know, the Samoan Islands. Think of um, the Philippines, specifically. And um, this this author quotes um, a bunch of crazy sort of racist senators from the early 1900s about... Um, after the Spanish-American War, you know, in the late 18, what was that, late 1800s, early 1900s? I don't remember the exact date, but uh, where, and then the, the Philippine-American War that most of us probably never even heard of, um, where we ended up with the Philippines as a territory, colony, whatever you want to call it. That's one of the points of this book is what do we call these territories, colonies? You know, we pretend like we don't have colonies, and then we do. Um, so after the war, there were a lot of people that were thinking about should the Philippines be independent? How, how should we govern the Philippines? Um, and there were all these crazy racists. I remember one was a senator. There were some other people talking about how, oh, these Filipinos could, uh, you know, they could never um, rule themselves. And one guy even went so far as to say, well, they're, they're like children, and you would never leave children in charge. And they even had sort of a World's Fair kind of a thing where um, people would come from all the different uh, territories, right? And they would dress them up. So people would come from the Philippines, right? They would dress them up uh, in sort of primitive people's outfits. And then they put them literally in booths for people to walk by and look at. Because um, you remember, this is before TV, and everybody wanted to know, what do these Filipinos look like? And, you know, what do they like in person? And so they, they literally did this. But the crazy part is, this guy went and he got a bunch of Filipinos to come over here and participate in this. Somehow he talked them into this. Then they get here, and then immigration wouldn't let them in. And so he had to, like, basically, I forget if it was bribe or sweet talk the immigration people, so that he drove them to Kansas where this fair was. And as soon as the fair was over, they kicked them back out of the country and sent them back to the Philippines. Even though I'm pretty sure that what happened was they they were promised 
uh, if you come, you can stay, right? And so they sold millions of tickets for this event, for people to come just stare at these um, these Filipino people and these Samoan people. And the attitude was this, and this is what I'm getting from this book. The attitude was that, you know, back in the day was that white folks are a better class of people, and these Filipino people are below us. And as I was listening to this book, you know, I was, where was I? I was driving somewhere. I had it in my earphone on my, or my headphones on my bike. And, you know, my blood was boiling as I read this book. Like, this is, I mean, I knew about, there's a lot of racist stuff we've read about in U.S. history. But, you know, when you learn a new one, which apparently we've all been doing a lot lately, um, when, when you learn about a new one, you know, my blood was boiling with anger. And, and then I realized something as I was thinking about this, that as bad as that is, and that, and don't get me wrong, it's a horrible thing on so many levels, um, it's that attitude, right, that we're a different class of people, we're a better class of people, is not really that different from how a lot of followers of Jesus act today in American churches, right? They look at the rest of the world, and even people, I'm not talking racially now, I'm just saying like believers and non-believers, they look at the rest of the world with contempt. And it's the same attitude that those empire-loving white folks uh, in the early 20th century had for Filipino people, right? These Christians, they look at the world around them with disgust. Ew, the, these people out there are sinners, right? And they're dirty and they're gross. Um, but in here, inside the church, we're clean, we're better. Uh, today, Jesus is, we've talked about the ethnocentric attitude that I'm better than everybody else and that sort of stuff. Today, Jesus is specifically going to walk right up to this attitude that there's these different classes of people and he's going to punch that in the face, right? So we're going to be, uh, we're going to read um, from uh, just a few verses today. So it's a shorter text today. We're going to read 527 through 32. So we'll start here at the beginning of um, verse 27. After this, so after he healed the paralytic guy that we talked about last week, uh, remember they lowered him through the roof and all that stuff. After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. So, okay, we need a history lesson here. Um, a lot of times I think we just gloss over this. I'm going to do the whole history lesson. So um, pause the movie, go and get some popcorn. This is going to take a while. So the people of Israel started, let's go back to the, the Joshua and the, the conquest of the promised land. And then they had this period where they had these judges who ruled over the nation. Um, but it, it, they didn't really gain any prominence. They didn't really become a nation instead of a, a coalition of tribes until, really until David came along, King David. And then his son Solomon was sort of the peak of the kingdom of Israel. And they looked, people would, the Jewish folks would look back at the time where Solomon was king as like the golden age of the monarchy of Israel. Well, then the kingdom split in two after Solomon and uh, things all went kind of downhill from there. Um, and then in 722 BC, the, the kingdom of Assyria came and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. So the southern kingdom of Judah still kind of hung on for a few years, but their sin was so bad that the Bible tells us God sent Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And they came in in 586 BC and they, uh, well, there was actually three sieges that kind of ended in 586 BC. They destroyed Jerusalem, they burnt the temple down, and they took everybody captive and they took them to Babylon. And so the history of Israel really goes like this. They had one they had a couple of years there, a couple hundred years of the monarchy and the independent kingdom of Israel. The pinnacle that was actually towards the beginning was Solomon, right? Um, the third king of Israel, Solomon. And um, so they had this independence. But then after that, the whole story of Israel is the story of what foreign power ruled the land of Israel. So first it was Babylon, but the kingdom of Babylon did not last very long after they took Jerusalem. So 
um, less than, you know, I forget how many years, 50 years or whatever it was, less than 50 years after they destroyed the kingdom, uh, after they destroyed the city of Jerusalem and burnt the temple, uh, the Medes and the Persians came in and they sacked Babylon and uh, deposed the Babylonian kings and they set up their own kings. So that's like um, Xerxes and Cyrus and all these guys. Um, so the Persians ruled for a while. We read about the Persians a lot with um, in the book of Daniel, at the end of the book of Daniel. Um, you know, the whole uh, Daniel in the lion's den, that was, a whole, that was the Persian king. Well, after the Persians, there was a guy named Alexander the Great. And I think we talked about him just a little bit a few weeks ago. But Alexander the Great was the son, he was a Macedonian king, the son of Philip. And he raised a great army and then he traveled all over the world. And just killed a whole lot of people. He was not a very good dude. And uh, after he conquered um, the Persian Empire and Israel, and uh, he went into uh, across the desert and then into um, India and then back around, and he went to Egypt where he died. His kingdom was then split into four different kingdoms. So his he didn't leave an heir, and so his generals split up the empire into four kingdoms. And so um, <clears throat> at first. One of those four kingdoms was the kingdom that ruled over the land of Israel, and that was the Ptolemies, uh, with a silent P at the beginning there. Um, they ruled in mainly in Egypt, but they also had Israel as part of their um, their kingdom. And so um, they ruled from 320 to 198 BC. And actually, um, Cleopatra, way later on, um, was a descendant of these um, the the Ptolemy family, right? And so she actually wasn't even Egyptian, right? She was Greek. Um, after there's a lot of history here, but after the Ptolemies um, ran the kingdom of Israel as part of their empire, the other one of the other four kingdoms took over Israel. One of the other four Alexander the Great's uh, general kind of kingdoms, the Seleucids, they came to power in Israel in 198 BC. And uh, so not a lot is known about life during the period where the Ptolemies ran Israel, but there is a lot we know about uh, during the time when the Seleucids did. They were horrible. They were way less tolerant of the Jewish religion. And it all sort of came to a pinnacle, came to a head with this guy, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Um, he, this guy was a real turkey. And uh, he passed a lot of laws basically outlawing the Jewish religion. So you could get the death penalty for things like reading your Bible or circumcising your sons. Things that, basically all the things the Bible, the Old Testament, the law of Moses commanded, this guy outlawed with the death penalty. And so what happened was the people revolted. And there was this dude named uh, Mattathias, I think is how you say that. Uh, he started a revolt and then uh, his sons picked up the revolt and um, led especially by one of his sons named Judas Maccabees. Um, and that's a nickname. Maccabees is a nickname that meant uh, the hammer, right? Because he was dropping the hammer on the Seleucid family. And so um, this is why we call it because of Judas Maccabees. We call this the Maccabean Revolt. And all of this stuff is happening between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament, right? So um, this Maccabean Revolt led to the next, you know, and during the Maccabean revolt was the whole thing that, um, with the lamp being lit uh, for Hanukkah, the, the, um, the, the festival of Hanukkah there. And so uh, th this revolt was successful, and eventually the Seleucids 
it, it basically became too annoying for them to keep the nation of Israel. And so they, they left. And for a while, the, the Jewish nation was independent again for the first time since the fall of Babylon. So this is in 141 BC is when this started. And the fall of Babylon was in 586 BC. So it's been quite, you know, hundreds of years now that they've been under the rule of these various foreign powers, right? Babylon, Persia, um, the Ptolemies, uh, and then... Um, the Seleucids. And so uh, during this period, we have what's called the Hasmonean dynasty. And these guys were actually a lot of crooks. And um, during this whole time, Israel was pretty much independent. They were led by high priests, um, who some of them called themselves kings. Um, there was even one sort of a queen in there for a while. Um, and at one point, there were these two brothers, Aristobulus and Hi... Let me see if I can read this right. Hyrcanus. Uh, so Aristobulus II and Hyrcanus II, I have no idea if I'm saying those names correctly. Um, these two guys were fighting over the throne of Israel. And so both of them came up with the same idea at the same time. There's this new rising power um, in the world, the Romans. And so far they've been mostly friendly or whatever. So I'm going to reach out to Rome and I'm going to say, hey, Rome, if you help me take the throne, uh, get rid of that other guy, uh, this will be a more stable area. Well, the problem is both of them said that. And so um, this led to the next, they both went to Rome with the same request, and it led to the next period um, called the Roman occupation, right? This is where Rome came in. So what happened was, um, well, when I was a kid, when I would fight with my brothers over a toy or whatever, my dad would say, well, fine, neither of you can have it. Um, and uh, since I was a kid and he was the grown-up, right, that's how it went down. That's basically exactly what happened with the kingdom of Israel as they these two guys both approached Rome and asked for help. And so Rome came in, um, and this guy named General Pompey, you may have heard that name before, Pompey, he came to Jerusalem in 63 BC, and he looked at them and he goes, you know what, since neither of you guys can get along, I'm just going to take it. And he conquered Jerusalem. And um, by this time, Rome now was on the rise. Uh, there wasn't really anything that the Israelites could do about it. Uh, it was probably inevitable that Rome would take over, but these two guys definitely opened the door as they were bickering over the throne. And so the Romans made Israel a vassal state um, with a ruling aristocracy. So they were uh, completely under the thumb of the Roman Empire, but they had a little bit of... Uh, just a tiny little bit of autonomy. Now, this all happened about 90 years before uh, what we're reading right here. And so, um, let me just give you one more detail, though. One of the reasons for the revolt of the Maccabees was that Antiochus Epiphanes IV, um, that real turkey, uh, he set up an image of Zeus in the temple of God, and he sacrificed unclean pigs on the altar. And that sparked a revolt among the people that eventually led to them... Um, to them uh, kicking the Seleucids out and becoming independent. Well, when Pompey took over Jerusalem all those years later, he went into the temple uh, and they said, it says where he was not supposed to go because he was a Gentile. And it says he even went into the Holy of Holies in the back of the temple, which was like the ultimate sacrilege. And so right off the bat from the from day one, when the Romans came in and took over Jerusalem, um, they they really angered the Jewish people with not just, oh, hey, we're this new power who's taking over, but we're also disrespectful of your religion. Some of that eventually calmed down, but getting off on that bad of a foot is hard to get over. Now, let me tell you why I'm telling you all this, why this matters. The people of Israel were a proud people. Um, they were God's people, and they were looking forward to the Messiah coming, right? The, the son of David, the king... Um, wait, my phone is ringing. Sorry. 
um, the son of David uh, coming, the king who would who would sit on David's throne, and so they were they were looking forward to the next era where there would be no um, foreign power ruling in Israel. They were looking forward to the next period of independence. They were looking for the next Judas Maccabees, and so the problem is what they were missing is. The, yes, the Bible says that the Messiah would sit on the throne of David, but it's an eternal throne, the kingdom of God. And so after, uh, after, after years and years and years of, of, um, of oppression, these guys finally had a, a chance to be free and they had this kingdom for just a few years and then Rome came in and spoiled all of that. And so these people did not view the Romans as a friendly governing power. They hated them. Uh, just like they hated the Seleucids, just like they hated the Ptolemies, just like they hated the Babylonians and the Persians, right? Any uh, foreign power that was oppressing God's people, they hated them. And so now that history is very important to understand what's going on here because this, this, this uh, text opens up with this tax collector sitting in his booth, right? Now, the Romans, this, this foreign power that these people hated with every fiber of their beings, they collected taxes uh, from the people of Israel to fund all sorts of government projects in Israel, but also outside of Israel. And they did this through a, a tax system that they called tax farming. Now, uh, there were two kinds of taxes. First, there were fixed taxes. So they had a thing called a poll tax, which basically means you had to pay a tax just for being alive. Um, you had to give one-tenth of anything that you, you would grow on your farm, um, and then you had to have, uh, and this is really oppressive, right, a 1% income tax. Boy, don't you wish our income taxes were one? No, I'm just kidding. Um, but then, so that stuff was all just kind of fixed. But then there was this other kind of taxes. Um, it was called, uh, you know, they were like, um, these were more fluid taxes. There's uh, duty taxes, toll taxes, things like that. This is where the real corruption would happen. And so the way that this worked was tax farming. They, each district <clears throat> had a, a figure. The Roman government would come up with a figure. So let's say San Francisco owes a million dollars a year. So then the right to collect those taxes would be auctioned off. So, so they would have an auction and everybody would bid and somebody would buy uh, that franchise for let's say a million and a half dollars. So what would happen is this guy would collect a million and a half dollars and he would send a million to Rome and he would keep a half a million for himself. Now, but what, what also would happen was then whoever bought that franchise would hire out uh, men to actually go and collect those taxes. So he would so Rome required a million, he would require a million and a half, and then he would send out these guys, he would break it up and say, you 10 guys, you each owe me $150,000 by the end of the year. So those guys could then go out and they could collect as much taxes as they wanted, basically. They had to give their 150000 to that guy who would then give 100000 to Rome. And so you could see in an era where record keeping was less than stellar, this was a huge problem with abuse. Um, uh, the, this, this tax collector sitting in a booth, uh, you know, wherever he was, he could collect whatever he wanted. He paid his boss whatever he owed uh, him, but then he'd keep the rest. And so this whole thing was like a mob shakedown. And so with all that history of everybody already hates Rome, and then on top of that, these guys are basically rip-off artists, you can see how much people hated these tax collectors. Um, one commentator said this, that the Jewish tax collectors were easily the most hated 
men in Hebrew society, despicable, rich vermin. Uh, they were classed with robbers, evildoers, adulterers, with prostitutes, and with pagan Gentiles. They were not only hated for their robbery, but also because they were the lackeys of the Romans. Tax collectors could not serve as witnesses in court, um, and they were excommunicated from the synagogues. Uh, low life. Uh, Levi, so he's talking about Levi here. Low life Levi and his friends were the lowest of the low. So I was thinking about this. What's sort of a modern equivalent to a tax collector? And then I realized the other a couple weeks ago, I watched uh, Band of Brothers, that mini series about the 101st Airborne Easy Company and the 101st Airborne during World War II. And uh, at one point, they were passing through, I think it was Holland. And they had just kind of kicked the Nazis out and everybody was celebrating and there was a parade and they had flags going. And then the soldiers looked over and the crowd was being very rough and they threw this woman to the ground and everybody was kind of hitting her and they were shaving her head. And one of the guys said something like, I don't remember exactly how it went, but said, you know, what did she do? And they said, oh, she was a, a Nazi collaborator. You know, those are the ones who, I think it was that, that she slept with a Nazi or something like that. And then he was like, whoa, that's rough. You know, and they said, oh yeah, but we shot the men. I think that's what they said. But anyway, that's probably the closest thing in the modern world to what these tax collectors were. Imagine the audacity and the self-centeredness it took during World War II to be a Nazi uh, collaborator, to snitch on somebody to the Nazis. Well, that's basically how the people um, in Israel viewed these tax collectors. And so here in verse 27, we meet a tax collector now. The scum of the earth, the lowest of the low, the bottom of the Hebrew society. And we meet this guy. His name is Matthew. Or, sorry, his name is Levi. His other name is Matthew. So in Mark 9, he's called Matthew. Um, it wasn't uncommon, if you remember, for people in the first century world to have like a Hebrew name and then a Greek Latin name. So think of Saul and Paul. A lot of people think, oh, God changed his name, you know, like Jacob and Israel or something like that. But that's not actually what happened. He probably went by Saul and Paul his whole life. Same here, Levi and Matthew. A couple of the other disciples also have two names. We'll get into that when we read the list of the disciples later on in Luke. So Matthew is here and he's sitting in his tax booth. This is Matthew, by the way, who wrote the book of Matthew. Um, so spoiler, right? He becomes a disciple of Jesus. Um, so anyway, he's sitting at his tax booth. So he's one of the minor tax collectors. He's not one of the the, the high up guys. Zacchaeus, we'll read later, um, he was a chief tax collector. That's what they call him, a chief tax collector. Matthew wasn't. And most scholars think that um, this is happening here in Capernaum or somewhere around there. And um, Matthew probably collected taxes on something like the fishing trade as the goods were being shipped away from the Sea of Galilee to the other towns. And so Matthew is sitting in his tax booth, right? He's ripping people off, uh, serving the evil occupying Roman Empire. And Jesus walks right up to him, verse 27. So let's read all of 27 now. Um, After this, he went out. He saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. He says to him, follow me. Jesus is inviting him into salvation, right? This is what he's doing. You, Luke um, uh, uses this phrase a lot uh, to describe surrendering your life to Jesus as Lord. Let me read you two verses uh, from Luke 9, uh, 9.23. And he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And then in Luke 18, 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. This is when he's talking to the rich young ruler. One thing you still lack. Um, 
Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. So that same invitation is what he is offering here to Matthew. Think about the history that we just talked about. Think about who Matthew was in this society. And Jesus walks right up to him and says, I want to be your Lord. Right? I want you to be part of sort of the, 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 the crowd of people who are saved. Um, do you remember everything that we talked about when we talked about leprosy? Right, that when you when you got leprosy, you were basically kicked out of the synagogue. You were exiled from society. You were hated and looked down upon. Well, all of the except for the disease, the rest of the effects of leprosy are basically what happened to tax collectors. Except leprosy doesn't happen on purpose. This does. This is the life that Matthew has chosen to be in exile in exchange for money. Right to betray his people basically to the Roman Empire. He has chosen to leave the people of God. And then here he is sitting in his booth, and one of the most famous rabbis in the land walks up to him and says, guess what, dude, you're back in. We can't even in our world imagine the scandal here. I can explain this as much as I can, but until you hate somebody with like your guts, you won't really understand how insane this would have been to any first century reader. Imagine that, let's say next week, I guess the best example I could think of, imagine next week um, if I got up you know, here on the video and, you know, or on the Zoom call. And I said to everybody, hey, guys, we've we've hired a couple of new pastors and everybody's all excited. Oh, hey, this is really cool. And then I introduced them to you guys. The first pastor is Harvey Weinstein and the second one is Bill Cosby. Now, obviously, sexual predators bring safety concerns and we would never hire them as, you know, we wouldn't hire them as pastor. But that gut level feeling like what those guys, right, people hated this guy. They hated him to the point that uh, if they could get away with it, most Israelites probably would have murdered him. I mean, this this is like real hatred, like Osama bin Laden or, um, you know, Kim Jong-un or any of the Dodgers, right? These, th- these people really hated this dude. So let's see what happens, though. Jesus walks up to him and says, hey, dude, I want you to follow me. Verse 28. And leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. He follows him. He surrenders his life to Jesus. And as he does, it says here that he left everything. Now, remember um, just a few verses ago, although it was a couple of weeks ago, we read about Peter, James, and John and the miracle catch um, and uh, how they became disciples. And this is the same language. It says there that they left everything. But here's the difference. I'm guessing that um, uh, if everything were to go south with Jesus... Uh, they could all go back to fishing, which they kind of do actually after the resurrection for a bit, but not Matthew, right? He's burning bridges. I'll bet he's not going to be able to go get his job back. The chief tax collector that he works for probably would have filled his job quickly because although the shame and everything that came with this job, people in this world were desperate. If the options are starve to death or be a tax collector you know, or have this really well-paying job. I don't know. I'm guessing he was able to fill this. There weren't a lot of really well-paying upper middle-class jobs, but this was one of them. And so he decides to just leave everything, burn his bridges and walk away. And that's what real discipleship is. It's following Jesus with your whole heart. Um, uh, uh, leaving sin and its power behind you, leaving your idols behind you, right? Following Jesus and turning to him with real actual joy. And that's actually what Matthew does in the next verse. But before we jump into the next verse, I also think it's really interesting. Think about this. Um, There's no way to prove this, right? But most scholars do think that Matthew was some kind of a tax collector 
probably in the area where Peter, James, and John had their fishing business. And it's not like there were a lot of tax collectors, right? There weren't hundreds of tax collectors in each of these towns. There was probably just a couple. And so the odds are that when Peter, James, and John had to pay their uh, their tax just for being alive, the poll tax, or when they had to pay the the tax to move their fish from the Sea of Galilee to other areas where they could sell it, the odds are that Matthew was the tax collector who collected those taxes from Peter, James, and John at least a few times. And here, Matthew now has joined Jesus's group of disciples, where just a few verses earlier, Peter, James, and John had joined Jesus's group of disciples. And there was another guy, and we'll talk about him later on, right? But um, Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were people who were basically terrorists against the Roman Empire. And so in Jesus's group, we have in the middle Peter, James, and John who paid taxes probably to Matthew. We had Simon who in another life probably would have tried to kill Matthew. And then we have Matthew the tax collector. I bet that that was a very uncomfortable uh, first couple of weeks for the disciples. Right, Jesus got it, but did the disciples? I don't know. Well, anyway, so coming to Jesus, though, as he, I, you know, I just think it's interesting to think about. I can't wait to be dead, you know, because then I'm going to go up and I'm going to ask these guys all about what it was like those first couple of days. I've always wondered about that. All right, so here we are. Uh, Matthew has left everything, and part of, like I said, part of leaving everything behind, though, is you're leaving everything behind, but you're getting something better. You're getting the joy that comes from following Jesus. And so verse 29, we see Matthew acting out of that joy. Uh, and Levi made him a great feast uh, in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So he throws this great feast. I just read a book. Actually, it's right there on my shelf. Um, I just read a book about, um, it traced the theme uh, of, uh, of feasts through the Bible, and specifically the big part of the book was Jesus eating with sinners. And what this book said was that eternity is is constantly pictured in scripture as being this great and grand feast. Remember that most of the people at this time were probably like what we would consider very poor, and they would only even eat meat on special occasions. Right? People didn't eat like we do. One of the one of the things that really hit me once was somebody said, I don't even remember where this happened, but somebody said to me once, one of the crazy things about our world is that, you know, we live in a world where every meal has to be delicious. I'm like, oh that's so true. But the rest of human history didn't really eat like this, right? They didn't live like this. And so um, uh, feasts, like a wedding feast, was a big deal, not just because your friends were getting married, but because uh, you got to enjoy food like this for on a rare occasion. It was a real treat. And so here Matthew now is throwing this feast, um, and Jesus shows up, and he's eating with all of these people. Now, who you ate with in the ancient Near East was a very big deal. To eat with somebody was to honor them. Um, our version of this would be something like um, going on vacation with somebody. So like uh, Melissa and I have been on a few vacations with our friends Gabby and Joel. Um, I don't know if that will ever happen again because we all have a billion kids now, but we'll see. Um, and when, uh, when, when people find out, oh, Melissa, John, uh, Joel, and Gabby, they went on vacation together. They must be pretty tight, right? You only go on vacation with friends. You know what I mean? Like you don't go on vacation with people you hardly know. That was kind of what they thought of eating meals with people in the ancient Near East, right? And so Jesus is here and he's giving honor and, you know, he, he's at this feast with who? Look at the guests. It's other tax collectors and others, right? Sinners. Um, 
people who've been given the boot from society. But I mean, that makes sense, right? They've all been thrown out of society. Who else are they going to hang out with? And I love this, right? This is exactly our mission, right? Come to Jesus and be filled with joy. And then once you are, try to spread that joy around. Let other people know the same joy that you have come to know in Christ. Uh, David Guzik, a commentator, says, uh, you know, pastor in Santa Barbara, he said this, a saved man doesn't want to go to heaven alone. And I love that. That's exactly what Matthew is doing here. He has found salvation in Jesus. And so he brings Jesus to all of his other friends, these, these tax collectors, just because that's the people that he knew. And so this tax collector is throwing this party. It would have been, parties were a big deal in small towns like Capernaum, right? You couldn't throw a party without everybody in town finding out about it. And so people were kind of hanging around. Some of those people were the Pharisees who have now been hanging around Jesus quite a bit. Um, verse 30, it says, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So we've talked about these Pharisees now for a couple weeks in a row, these religious leaders. Um, and I love this specific detail that Luke adds here, because he must have gotten this information from one of the disciples. It says that the Pharisees grumbled, uh, grumbled at the disciples, not Jesus. They didn't take their problem to Jesus because they're probably intimidated by him. He's teaching in synagogues. Every time they ask him a question, he has the answer. He's this brilliant Old Testament scholar. But then also, you know, he's healing people of leprosy and big crowds. are They're afraid of Jesus, right? So, they have this problem with him, but they don't want to go to him directly. So they go to his disciples and they ask this question, right? Why are they eating with these? Why is he eating with these people? You see, these Pharisees saw the world as two groups of people. There were sinners and then there were not sinners. And ironically, that thinking of yourself as one of the not sinners is pride, which is actually sinful, which puts you in the other group. So these guys are pretty full of themselves. We're good. They're bad. Uh, we need to get away from the bad or we might catch whatever they have. And so they, they accuse Jesus, right? Why is he doing this? Why is he eating with these tax collectors and sinners? Now, throughout the Gospels, they accuse Jesus, the religious leaders accuse Jesus of a lot of stuff, right? Uh, casting out demons by the power of Satan or Beelzebub, right? Um, being a blasphemer by making himself equal with God, claiming to forgive sin, you know, all this stuff. Um, you know, blasphemy and all this stuff. Anyway, this is the accusation, though, that's actually true. This is the one that's actually true. That he eats with tax collectors and sinners. And do you see what that tells us about Jesus? This was who he chose to spend time with. Tax collectors, the people, the scum, the bottom of society. But why? Now, let's see. Jesus explains why. Look at his answer. He flat out tells them the reason. Not only why does he do this, but why did he even come to earth? And verse 31, Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So he has this two-part answer. First, he says, look, only sick people need a doctor. Now, remember, both Jesus and these Pharisees were crazy Old Testament scholars. I mean, these Pharisees, even as much as they would abuse the scriptures, they knew the scriptures. And so these guys knew the Old Testament. And so probably what's going on here is two guys or, you know, Jesus and this group of guys who really knew the Old Testament were talking and Jesus threw in this sort of almost hidden, not hidden to them, but to us, it seems hidden reference uh, to the book of Ezekiel. There's a section in Ezekiel where uh, this is what it says, Ezekiel 34. It says, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, 
the strayed you have not brought back, brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So it's, a, it's this section where Ezekiel, or God through Ezekiel, I guess I should say, was accusing the leaders of Israel, um, instead of taking care of the spiritually sick, right, you've abused them, you've hurt them. Instead of taking care of the poor and the widow, you've hurt and abused them. Jesus is probably alluding to that, right, where uh, this prophecy against the leaders of Israel. And he's saying, you Pharisees, call yourselves religious leaders. You want to be the leaders of our community, but you're doing the same thing that the leaders and Ezekiel did. And since you won't take care of these people, I'll do it for you. And then number two, he flat out says his, he, he says his mission. Look, I've come... I've not come to call the righteous, but but sinners to repentance. That That's what he's come to do. Call people to repentance, to save sinners, to free people from the power of sin so that when they turn away from sin, they can turn back to God. And that's the, right, that's the gospel story. Do you remember, we've talked about this quite a bit, the four movements. I'm sorry, my foot pedal's all messed up. The four movements of the gospel story, right? The gospel, uh, we tell it... Um, the, it's this free gift of salvation, but we tell it as a story with four movements, right? Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So God created the world perfectly, and everything was in harmony, and our relationships were perfect with each other. Our relationship with nature was perfect. Our relationship with him was perfect. But then uh, we chose to kick him out of the center and put ourselves at the center, and we chose not to let him be the Lord, and sin came into the world. And so the story of Israel is the story of God leading towards Jesus so that he could redeem uh, his people and bring them back together. And then eventually the the restoration, the consummation is he'll bring his people into a new and perfect eternity, um, better than even what it was before. And, uh, So we're going to get into this more next week. But here, this is what the Pharisees don't get. They don't get that gospel story. They don't get that it's not about you. The gospel is not about what you do to earn God's love. It's about what God has done uh, to buy you back um, and to pay the penalty for your sin. And so our temptation when reading this text, right? I'll say one of the things, we have this big temptation, and it happens a lot when we read the Bible. One of the things that drives me nuts about preaching is how people always sit in the pews or where are we now? Where are you? Probably on the couch, uh, sitting in bed, you know, may or may not have pants on, right? Uh, One of the things, you know, wherever you are, but it drives me nuts is that when we're sitting wherever we are, we're always thinking about other people while during the sermons. Like, man, I really hope John Grog is listening to this one, right? Or whatever. And we see texts like this and, and, it's this really beautiful truth that Jesus can even save people like Matthew. And uh, and then we think, well, okay, so this is what the text means. He can save people like me who were close and people like Matthew who were really far away. And it's this subtle way that we evangelical Christians act just like the Pharisees. We look at other people and say, that guy's Matthew. But me, no, 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 I'm more like the other disciples who we don't know much. I'm Peter, right? I'm James and John, whatever. Um, He only had to kind of save me, but he really has to save that other guy. That's the Pharisee attitude, right? That's splitting the world into these groups. And just that's not how the gospel tells the story. Oh, can you guys hear that siren really loud in my microphone? Um, Anyway, uh, you know, that's not really the gospel story. That's not how the gospel tells this story. And here's the irony. In verse 31, Jesus says this. 
He says, and Jesus answered them, those who are well have, so right at the end here, uh, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And now hearing this, um, we're posed with this hard question. Is Jesus saying that the Pharisees uh, are well and that the tax collectors are sick? Is that what he's doing? In verse 32, though, he says this also. He says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so on the surface, it seems like that's what he's saying, that you guys are all okay. You Pharisees, you're fine. You just stay over there, but let me help these guys. But I don't think that's what he's saying. Yeah, I, Really, I don't think that's what he's saying. He's He's not saying that the Pharisees are okay and these tax collectors are not. Um, he's saying, you guys are so full of yourselves, you don't even know that you're sick, right? You don't even want my help. And so I'm not going to give you my help because you don't want it. In Matthew's telling of the story, he adds this one. So Levi, who, you know, Matthew Levi, who this actually happened to, who was sitting at the table when this happened at this feast, he wrote the gospel of Matthew. And in that gospel, he adds one interesting phrase. Um, in Matthew 9:13, it says, this is Jesus' reply. It says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then he says, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So that quote there, I desire, uh, I'm sorry, that quote right there about, uh, Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's a quote from the book of Hosea. And the context of that quote is this. God uh, is telling the people that you can, you can sacrifice, you can do these rituals, you can do all this stuff on the outside without your heart in it. And God says, look, if that's what you're doing, I don't want you to do it. Just stop it. Don't do your ritual sacrifices. Don't do all the stuff that you're doing without the heart. Cut it out. Um, and just, uh, you think that you can just outwardly do these religious things, follow this religious recipe, and righteousness is just going to pop out. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Right? That's, they thought, and we're going to get into this a lot more next week, uh, they added all these rules to Scripture and they tried to look righteous on the outside. And Jesus would later say, you guys are like really nicely painted tombs, right? You look nice on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. And looking nice on the outside, though, fed their pride to the point that they forgot what this was all about. It's about God's grace for sinners. And so Jesus is not saying, look, you Pharisees are all okay. What he's saying is you're all Matthew and you don't even know it. You're sick and you refuse to believe it. Imagine the how horrible it would be for a doctor to tell you that you have cancer and then you go, you know what? I don't have cancer. And the doctor says, look, you really need chemo. You really need, we caught it early. We can do something about it. And you're like, no, you know what? People like me, we don't get cancer. We're already healthy. That's spiritually what these Pharisees were doing. And so the way to salvation is to realize something. It's to start with this. I am Matthew, right? Not Matthew Verzi, by the way, right? We're talking about Matthew from the Bible. Um, you are. You're, you're Levi, right? You're Matthew. It's true. So in a way, there are two groups, right? But it's not sinners and not sinners, that, you know, that's what the Pharisees thought. They thought there were two groups, sinners and people who don't sin. People like me who are good and people like those guys who are bad. But that's not it. There are two groups. There are people who know that they're sinners like Levi and Ma Matthew Levi. Um, and then there are people who, to their own peril, have convinced themselves that they're not. Those are the two groups. And so I want to read to you now from Luke. I've read this. This is probably one of my favorite parts of the book of Luke. But from Luke... Um, in uh, chapter 18, I'm going to read to you this whole parable that Jesus tells. Um, let me scroll through here. All right. Uh, Luke 18, 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous 
and they treated others with contempt. So basically exactly the attitude these Pharisees have. He said two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. So the same two groups, right? The Pharisee, standing by himself, he prayed. Uh, he prayed thus, like this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even this tax collector, probably pointed at the guy. Right? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's Jesus basically explaining the story of Matthew. Right? Is that uh, there's no room in the kingdom of God for people who think that they're too good for Jesus. The kingdom of God is for people who know what they really are. Right? Sinners in need, great sinners in need of an even greater Savior. Now let me tell you how this should play out in our church. We can't be self-righteous. There's no room for that in church, in the, in the, with the people of God. And as we talk about neighboring, especially in reaching out and loving our city, we can't go out into the world with this self-righteous attitude. If we're really going to love our neighbors, if we're, that means we're really going to have to love sinners. People who practice sexual sin, people who are greedy, people who cheat on their taxes and treat their employees like garbage, people who are racists, people who abuse drugs and alcohol, people who are self-centered and mean, um, people who are arrogant and proud. Right? We're going to interact with folks like this. And we can't look at folks who struggle with these things and think, Father, I thank you that I'm not like this guy. I thank you that I'm not like my neighbor. Because if we do that, how is that going to help him? That kind of arrogance is one of the reasons uh, that the church has such a terrible reputation in this country. Um, because there are so many you know, believers, quote-unquote, who act like these Pharisees. And they split the world into two groups, sinners and not sinners. Here's the attitude we need to take. Thankful humility. Lord, I'm a sinner. Right? Maybe even, even worse than my sinful neighbor. But through your grace... You have freed me from the power of sin, and you've called me to proclaim your grace to the people around me. We're thankful for that. And we know we don't deserve, grace means we don't deserve it. There's nothing that we have done to earn the grace of God. Now, I want to just close with this story just to show you how this plays out. One thing I hate is when pastors toot their own horns and tell stories of, you know, when things went really well. Because the truth is that for a lot of us, too, it goes just as terribly when we try to share the faith and and whatever. But I don't I also don't want to only be the pastor who always shares stories about how things went terribly. So try to balance it out, right? Um but I do want to tell you about a conversation I had where I think this kind of came into play. I was having lunch a while ago uh with a non-believing friend and we were talking about the foster care stuff and he was asking me all about that. And um he was blown away by what Melissa and I have done for these kids and I was explaining to him about um Foster the Bay and how we believe that um uh, God calls us to to love these children and uh, that the way that we love them reflects how he loves us and all that sort of stuff. And uh, he said something to me. He said, wow, you, you and Melissa, you guys are saints. And that was my opening. And so what I said to him was no. Now, caveat, he's not using the word saint like Paul uses it, right? Technically, according to the biblical usage, all of us who are believers are saints. But he was using it like, you know, the word we use it in our culture, right? You're just a really good person. 
And so I used that as the opening. And I told him, actually, no, I'm a pretty terrible person. I'm selfish. I'm proud. Um, I have a lot of sin in my heart, right? And um, I could tell, I could see it in his eyes that he almost couldn't even believe what he was hearing. A pastor who is foster care and all this stuff is sitting across telling him, no, I'm a terrible sinner. Um, And it was my chance to explain grace to him. And what I said was something like basically what I just said to you guys is you expect, you know, you might think that Christianity is about this list of rules you have to follow so that you can avoid hell, but it's not. Christianity is not about how good we are. It's about how good Jesus is. And so anything that comes from me that's good is a result of his grace. I'm not a good person and neither are you, right? I'm not, I'm Matthew, right? And the good news is of the gospel is that even though we're all like Matthew, we're all like Levi, we're all sinners, right? Even though, and maybe even worse than him, his grace is available to anybody who comes to him, to, you know, the great physician. He's come, he's come because we're all sick, and that's the point of the Gospel of Luke, is to show us how that we, we can be healed by accepting his grace and being washed in his blood. Let's pray. So Lord, I thank you for that, and that, that really is the Gospel story, that you have saved your people, a bunch of wretched, filthy, disgusting sinners who have rebelled against you and deserve nothing but your wrath for all of eternity. But Lord, we're just so grateful for how much you love us, for the way that you reached into every one of our lives as we all act like Levi, sinners to the core. You, you reached down and you saved us through the cross. And, and looking outward away from our church, Lord, we just pray that you would, you would send us out into this city with humble uh, hearts, with, with with hearts filled um, not with our sin but with your love for the people around us so we just ask that you would do this powerful work in our town we love you so much amen